You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Yet sometimes, as in the instance of our dear fan, the talk lingers. Perhaps it's because we don't have much actual footage of her, unlike that of the long-distance runner, or even of Joseph niftily curling a shot into the goal. There's no more to see on our hand screens after that first surveillance vid of her exit. Nothing at all. And so the secondary rumor and conjecture continues to root and grow. We reshape the story even when we believe we are simply repeating it. Our telling becomes an irrepressible vine whose hold becomes stronger than the originating stock and sometimes even topples it, replacing it altogether. Chang Ray Lee is the author of Native Speaker, which was a winner of the Hemingway Foundation Penn Faulkner Award for First Fiction, A Jester Life, and Aloft. His novel, The Surrendered, was a winner of the Dayton Peace Prize Award and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His new novel is On Such a Full Sea. Thank you for joining me, Chang Ray. Happy to be here, Rick. One of the things that struck me about this novel is that most of your other novels have that dealt really strongly with the immigrant experience. It took me a while to read this and realize that this, too, does the same thing, but it's through a really interested and complicated set of funhouse mirrors. So I'd like you to talk about your previous uh, works of mimetic realistic fiction that dealt with this experience and how you, how and why you decided to translate that into this kind of speculative fiction work. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, my first two novels are probably more pointedly could be called uh, you know, immigrant novels of, of a sort, they, they really focus on an individual consciousness of, some, of a newcomer, someone who finds uh, his place in both instances, uh, men, who finds his place to be unsettled. He's trying to negotiate uh, the culture, which is not immediately uh, something that feels natural, and sort of situate himself inside that culture. So it's a real psychological unpacking of all the things that those characters are thinking, feeling, positing about themselves and, and you know, the, their kind of destiny within, within the landscape, the landscape that we know of, say, you know, contemporary America. This book turns around the immigrant story a little bit. I don't consider it an immigrant story foremost, but, you know, just because of who I am, certain issues keep arising. And one of them, of course, is always about the individual and the place, or a person, or a group of people in the place. And and this novel has features a you know community that has been brought over en masse from a place called New China, and is um, tasked to uh, resettle, revitalize, and labor in a special production facility in a future America. So it's, a, it's an immigrant novel of sorts, except these particular immigrants are, in fact, quite welcomed uh, and even needed uh, by the local people because of the you know, ravages of environmental ravages um, and lack of skilled labor in that future America I'm talking about. But it's still, of course, you know, uh, aside from the, the story about their work, it is a story about how a community creates itself and not just through 
progenation, but but through a certain kind of self-reflection. And where that self-reflection leads to, at least in this book, is a certain kind of creation. So in, in some ways, I, I wanted to write a story that, that seemed like it was, at one point, in one regard, a tale of venture of, of a single person, but also in the telling of the tale, uh, begin to try to limb out who the community was that, that the heroine leaves, uh, how they come to be, uh, and how they see themselves fitting into this world again. You know, one of the things that I really liked about this book was the way you looked at time and the way we move through time and the way we perceive time. There's a great line in here where you talk about the unfailing turn of the hours and how they retrieve for us the known harbor of yesterday. And I think that's such an instructive sentence that should be put at the top of every science fiction novel that has ever gone out there because what we forget when we look into the future is we want to say, oh, it's going to be really different. It's going to be really different. We forget that how much of the past is always present in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when, when you, those words, the known harbor of yesterday, I, I use the, the word harbor um, quite carefully there uh, because, of course, it's a protected place that we can, we can navigate uh, at, our, you know, at our leisure uh, because we have the, 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 the benefit of hindsight. Um, in this case, too, the harbor is, is not always positive as well. It's, it's, um, the har- it's, a, it's almost a, a sense of a place that um, is maybe too safe, um, is maybe a little stunted. Um, so there's a there's a dual a dual feeling about um, you know what one learns uh, uh, about uh, say you know a historical legacy and and in in looking forward and you know in writing this kind of speculative fiction um, I kept looking backwards actually at at the kinds of experiences that I'd have researching China uh, my own particular anxieties uh, over the last ten years or so about certain trends in our country, um, and, and not trying to uh, look outside of what I knew um, to, to figure out, you know, the, the kind of contours of some uh, supposedly future landscape. There were two um, parts of the real world that you were trying to grapple with in realistic mimetic fiction that led you to take up this piece of speculative fiction. I'd like you to talk about them and about the tension between them, and uh, particularly about the, your research that you did in, in China. Well, I was planning to write a, uh, a novel about a Chinese factory workers set in contemporary China. I was interested in a kind of social realist novel about their, their labors and their community, uh, their struggles, uh, much like um, the novel Germinal by Emile Zola wrote about coal mines in northern France. Mm-hmm. I love that book. Um, I thought it was a, uh, just a searing, a searing experience to read. And I wanted to give that kind of you know, uh, social fabric to, to a book about China. But I, uh, I felt afterwards, after doing a lot of research going over, meeting people, that um, my angle into the story was uh, not fully satisfying to me. I felt I was just doing good journalism, reporting and recounting what, what was going on. And I didn't have a, a special story. You know, obviously there would be stories about struggle and injustice, but uh, 
But I needed something else. I think for novels, you do need that, um, that other layer, uh, either through form or content um, or, or approach. And uh, so I sort of put it away. And, um, and then I, around the same time, um, uh, had an experience on the train between New York and D.C. where I saw uh, certain neighborhoods in East Baltimore that were uh, you know, long-time ghetto neighborhoods, uh, uh, forlorn, and uh, and this this day was uh, I saw a section that was abandoned, and and part of me just as a citizen felt as if I, um, you know, I just felt so frustrated with it. I had seen that neighborhood for many years uh, as an adult, and I had the odd, very odd thought of of of, of why not have these perfectly decent houses. Um, uh, occupied by people who needed them. Um, and then I thought, well, there's lots of Chinese people, say a village in China that had been environmentally poisoned, uh, could be brought over en masse uh, to live in this place. So that premise it kind of excited me, even though it seemed kind of strange. And, uh, and I kind of put the two stories together, because I, in interrogating that original Chinese factory story, I it was really about, you know, about Chinese power and ascendancy, but also about American stagnation and decline, uh, the sense that America was changing, uh, that China, were, regardless of its up, ups and downs, was on an upward trend, and, then I, and that I, I realized that, that here was my angle. Here was my, not just the premise, but, but an, an angle that it, the, the story was as much about us as it was about them. You use the word stagnation, and that's also occurred to me when I read that harbor line, was that a harbor is a place sometimes where you could have that kind of stagnation, where yeah, this, sure. that the stagnation of safety is, you know, it, it keeps you, you may be safe, but you're not going out. No, you're stewing in your own, you know, you, in every harbor you see, oh, it's so pretty, and then you look closely, and there's there's a film of oil on the water, right? <laughs> you know, it, it's designed that way. It's designed so that there's no flow, there's no danger, there's no sense of tides, you know, a violent sense of tides. So it's a, a place that, that is in some ways a bargain. It's a safe place for the boats, but you wouldn't want to swim there. And that's, that's sort of how I thought about all the uh, communities of this novel I've written, particularly the production facility, Beemore, that it's... It's a place where you could find respite from the so-called tides of the world, but in a sort of a, a state of unsettled stasis, as it were, uh, where you were focusing on that film on the water a little bit too much and realizing that it's gotten into you and, and maybe changed your sense of, of ever being able to get out of that harbor. You know, one of the things that I loved in this book is your sense of the way you kind of played with the language and invented a language to, to fit the future. And I'd like you to, to talk about the fun you have doing that as a writer and the challenges it presents because you have to be consistent once you invent a set of rules for the way things are referred to or described. You have to keep adhering to that. Yes. Uh, you know, aside from little, you know, technical things, um, you know, little uh, neologisms like vids or pics or something like that about, you know, hand screens uh, that's the minor stuff but the but the stuff that uh, I had fun with I think what you're referring to is just you know the way that in, in which the the narrator of the novel 
uh, encounters it, the characters and, and how, you know, there's, there's this kind of floating quality to the, to the voice that I enjoyed. Um, and it's partly because it, it's in a speculative context and circumstance. But it, it, it's a voice that, you know, is, is almost half dreaming as well as recounting. Uh, and I, I really, I didn't know that I was going to write it that way, but the, the more that I got into the story, I realized that, um, that I wasn't in the same position as the writer behind this voice. You know, I, I guess normally I always feel as if I'm, I'm um, more in control of that voice as the writer, you know, very close to it, shepherding it, but really almost riding riding saddle on that on that voice in this this instance with this novel i felt as if i just had you know the barest kind of control over the voice you know hoping that it would lean or or gravitate um, or turn the way that i wished but sometimes it wouldn't and i you know say in describing you know a certain scene of action or a certain emotional moment it, it would be like, you know, having a, a friend that you knew, but that, that the friend was in some kind of, you know, some sort of state where they were very unpredictable. Uh, I quite enjoyed that. It, it, um, it, it kept surprising me uh, as, as, you know, in terms of the turns that the voice actually would take, not so much the, the storytelling, but just the actual little turns of language. And for me, language, uh, even though I'm a fiction writer and a prose writer, that's almost uh, paramount. You know, it's it's without a sense of the language and a sense of how the story is being told. I really can't go forward. It's not just knowing what's going to happen. There's a hypnotic and almost uh, symphonic feel <clears throat> to the voice, which is it's a first-person plural, which is unusual, and it gives us a feeling too that we're reading a myth, uh, a saga. From the second we read, we we know that we're being told something that's important to the speaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and because it's a we, it seems even more important, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it seems like, you know, this is both kind of, um, it's almost, with the we, you almost feel a certain kind of sanction. Yes, this is what we're thinking. But pretty soon inside of it, we realize that there is some, as in a symphony or an orchestral movement, there are all these little voices within it. Even though there's one song mm -hmm. and one noise, one, one, one sound, there are these little murmurings from different sections uh, within the body of that voice. And, and that's also, uh, maybe that's a result of what I was talking about earlier, about not feeling really in command of, of this orchestra. It's like it's this orchestra was improvising as it went, um, and I was hoping that this section would do this and this section would do that. But it, so, so that's... That's kind of how, I, I liked how you said that. I, I, I think that's very much how it turned out, that, that, um, that I, it allows for tiny little voices to come up within you know, its, its consistent voice. Well, it gives you the opportunity in a way, even though you're doing first-person plural, there's a feel in parts of the book that you're doing, I guess, what's called a close third-person perspective. You kind, you are able to work that in, and it's really fun and entertaining for us because there's like little eddies in the current. Yes, and and I didn't, again, I didn't want to feel limited by it. Mm -hmm. We well, don't, you and know, that's I... one of the things that's nice. <laughs> is that kind of 
first person or first person plural or the you can be really claustrophobic, but this opens up. Yes, and, and that's one of the things that I was most worried about when I started it. I thought that I was writing myself, I could be writing myself into a very, very small box, a very small, very tight seam throughout this narrative. You know, so I, stri- I, I strive to, to try to break it down, break, break down that, you know, the, the typical kind of language and the typical kind of perspective. And it, and it turned out that the that the voice sometimes does second person address sometimes as you say a almost third person close to omniscient about what's going on without explaining itself which uh, is nice <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the second you try to explain it the second it just falls apart uh, and I, and it 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 surprised me in in terms of um, what I began to realize about all perspective which is all perspectives whether first person or third person always strive to do the other thing. That a third person, omniscient, always also strives at certain points to be intimate and particular. And that the first person voice, even if it's singular, at some points tries to leap into the more universal. Right. I mean, That's without an interesting observation, Noah, you're right. I've never thought about it. That but way. it's That's absolutely great. that way. Yes, I mean, yeah. it, 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 the, if you actually make it discreetly one perspective, it begins to stultify. Mm-hmm. It begins to feel as if it's a little airless and lifeless. So I think I think that's what happens anyway in every fiction, in every good, you know, successful fiction. I think in this fiction, I let it go a little earlier. <laughs> I really let the the perspectives bleed into it, one another. It was it's well. I think it makes it a lot of more fun to read. And one of the things I think that is uh, can be problematic in a story like this is <clears throat> you've got a you know, this isn't a happy world. Lots of the people aren't happy. And certainly from the perspective of your readers, this is a, a, a few steps down. So what can happen is that it can seem kind of joyless and unfunny. But I think you do a good job of putting in some bits of little bits of dark humor and some little bits of levity into the narrative to keep us involved and engaged. I'd like you to just talk about that because it never, you don't ever dial it up to the point where it, it conflicts with your tone. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was, uh, I didn't want this book to be a depressing book. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, one of the, my goals for it was so that my daughters could read it. They're, they're you know, in their early teenage years, and mm-hmm. I wanted them to have fun with it. Mm-hmm. But also, of course, um, maybe um, be compelled to think about some serious issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, when we get in, when Fan, the hero of the, of the book, gets into certain episodes, I always wanted to enter those episodes and leave those episodes with having, you know, a certain surprising little quirky little experience. And one of the episodes that kind of came upon me was when she meets this band of you know, sort of roving acrobats. It's a family <laughs> of acrobats. And the Nickelmans. Yeah, the Nickelmans who, they live out in the county, so they're just trying to get by just like everyone else. And Boy, aren't they the nicest family when she meets them. They're kind of organic food people. They grow their own, which is just an amazing thing for a fan and the company that she goes and, and stays with, spends an afternoon with them. I mean, they're just amazed by the, the homemade yogurt and all that stuff. And it just seems and they live under this big live oak tree. And they seem so, so I don't know, crunchy and wonderful, you know, in the 
a very Santa Cruz way. Yeah, actually. in a very Santa Cruz way. And, but of course, it turns out that despite how nice they are, and, and they're the, the nicest people you'd ever find out in these rough counties, they do have um, a little bit of a bloodthirst. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they don't eat meat themselves, but <laughs> they're sort of bloodthirsty vegetarians. And uh, I had a lot of fun with little things like that. Uh, you know, obviously meant to be a little satirical, but also trying to, you know, get to a, a, a serious idea about these folks, which is that given their circumstance, they've had to take certain very, very serious moral measures. You know, moral, they take certain moral, um, certain situations and, and have to make moral choices that, that are surprising. You know, one of the things I thought found most entertaining about this book was because we never actually get inside fans' head, there's this kind of uh, direct indirectness uh, in the story, and we talked about this a little bit last night, and, but I wanted to explore it some more, where the, uh, your, talent, your characters are utterly familiar with their world. We are entirely unfamiliar with their world, so they will refer to bits of it, and we're kind of as audience going, what, what? But slowly but surely, we get to put it together, and that's, I think, one of the skillful things you do as a writer is to lay out that trail of breadcrumbs so that as we read, we can put the puzzle together. And that's part of the fun of reading these sorts of books is putting together what thing, what's really going on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't want to, you know, it doesn't work if I kind of try to explain the whole world in the first paragraph <laughs> right. or, first, or first chapter, right? I mean... I've sort of read books that are like that. <laughs> you you kind of get the whole thing, and then, okay, now here's the story. But part of the story, of course, as you, as you say, is that discovery, is that puzzle piecing, right? Um, and and that's, that's fun. And, um, and I like the idea that you're slightly, slightly behind the curve at every moment. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a suspenseful feeling, I think, as a reader, uh, for one. Um, but also, I think it forces the reader and forces you to to be a little bit more active, mm -hmm. right? Put as you say, putting these things together, and uh, rather than just getting a string of of sort of maximized pictures, um, you know, as you would just in you know incredible TV HD TV show where you just sit back and kind of veg and and take in the experience. I wanted this experience to be as if you were really on the road with fan not quite knowing what was going to happen next. Maybe your heartbeat quickens just a little bit. I've always found that I, the fictions that always spoke to me were the ones that not just made me think a lot of interesting things, but really physically, viscerally, somehow, you know, just overwhelmed me. And, and they were surprising things. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, uh, a little moment in a James Joyce story that seems very quiet, but the but the turns and revelations of that moment just, you know, make my skin kind of just come alive. And that's, that's sort of what I wanted to do with all my fiction. You know, I, I've, I've never felt like uh, that I was just writing essays in, in fictive form. Uh, I, I want to, I've always wanted to give this, you know, very bodily experience as well. And, and I think that that comes across too in the tension for us as readers 
we're querying what's going on in this world and a lot of the action that we see in terms of trying to figure out what's going on is economic. There's these three different strata classes. There's the charter, the uh, be more the kind of the suburbs, I guess you'd call them. And then there's the counties, which is a kind of a Mad Max style wild west. And the ability to move from one to the other to the other, we see those, and we're trying to figure that out, while at the same time trying to relate each of them, as I just did, to something in our own life. And the, the tension, too, that we experience, thinking, well, you know, here in America, the upward mobility is almost nil at this point. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things that uh, I kind of wanted to get out about one of the choices, uh, why it led to the choice of having these three separate areas uh, rather than one society in which, you know, certain dramas would happen. So much of the book, because it's a quote-unquote road novel, is not just about discovering the world but discovering the dis differences within this world. And I, I definitely wanted to highlight those differences. The primary difference, as you say, is income level uh, and what all that that entails. I'm definitely extrapolating from, you know, my sense that the poor or working poor in this country are, in our present day li lives, are always, always behind the curve, that they can never make enough to educate their children out of or, or provide enough for them so they could really have... Uh, a significant chance, an opportunity to change their their status, uh, economic status. You know, it's and then you know we know of course you know just in terms of like you know uh, college test prep, we know that upper middle class families can afford the college test prep that allows their children to score that much a little bit higher on the test. So, and so it's sort of self-perpetuating, whereas the people who don't have those means, the opportunities uh, diminish for those for those for those children across, you know, across the population. So I, you know, I'm definitely concerned about a certain kind of entrenchment of class in our society. And more, even more frightening, uh, an acceptance of that entrenchment, uh, that, that this is just the way it is, and this is the way it's going to be. And, and you have a great anecdote with uh, Harvey and Ruby and this gets to, there's a, a, a bit of healthcare talk in this, and Harvey and Ruby, I think, is one of the mo most interesting things because uh, they bring to life something that it, you use a, have a great, do a great job of using your fantastical setting and your fantastical elements to get to an essential truth, and that end-of-life care is a great way to keep a middle-class family from ever being able to pass anything on, <laughs> because in the last two years of your death, you're going to use up every single ounce. Of, <laughs> right. Uh, last two years of your life, you can use every single right. ounce of your money keeping you alive, even though you don't want to be. <laughs> right. Right. And in more they do have... The, the workers in more again, they sort of have second-rate health insurance. You know, it's sort of catastrophic self-insurance, uh, health insurance. So it's the kind of insurance that's when you really need it, is no good. <laughs> so, and I think we all f definitely fear that, unless we're super rich. Even, this, even the very rich in our country, I think, are fearful, right? Mm -hmm. Because you could go through millions of dollars if you have cancer in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So this is something that, that in Be More, uh, the people decide, uh, those who are ill, uh, have to make pretty clear decisions about 
about what they're going to do and how much they can possibly leave their their households. And um, you know, these folks decide. Well, they're going to they're going to cut short <laughs> <laughs> the draw on their resources. Uh, and in it, it uh, obviously, there's there's a you know, it, it's meant to be a little bit satirical, but that's deadly serious. You know that these that again we the people of Bimor have accepted this plight. And that's what's, that's what's always sort of frightening to me, is that we've accepted something that's so insufficient and in, in you know, certain things of our civil society. We've, we've allowed them to get so insufficient and almost useless, and yet we've still accepted them. Why have we accepted them? Per, because of this myth about you know, upward mobility, that, okay, we're, we're becoming a society in which as long as you get your own, that's fine, you know. Uh, you know, damn the torpedoes. Oh, I don't. Who cares about anyone else? I, my ship is fine, and that's and that's something that I think that's a way of thinking uh, that we've gotten a little bit too comfortable with. And, and this comes to uh, you brought up uh, cancer, and, and this is a world you created a world in which cancer is the norm, not the exception. Yeah, I don't. It's called C, which is sort of a very much, of course, it's like a cancer type illness, and and all kinds of cancers, as we know, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the cancer is the is the metaphor of our time, right? It's it's we've we've we we are ourselves out of control. Are, are cellularly <laughs> and also uh, culturally and socioeconomically. We, mm-hmm. we, uh, we have somehow sown the seeds of our own destruction and can't seem to, uh, to find any kind of remedy for it because it's not something outside of us. It's within us. And, you know, it, the, the reason why in my book can't, the C illness is so prevalent is partly because of the environment, of course, uh, the, all the pathogens and contaminants but you know the the pathogens and contaminants also have a, a soul component right it's the, the all the things that these folks have grown up with this idea that they are somehow particularly the charters unassailable uh, when when they're really not uh, there's uh, the feeling it's amazing what you can get used to uh, that you can grow accustomed to any level of ill trust, ill temper, bad treatment. Uh, hu- humanity is unfortunately very adaptable to its own uh, be- shortcomings. Yeah, it is adaptable, um, and and I think one of the one of the interests of the novel is how it's not just physically adaptable, but it's because we tell stories to ourselves to make ourselves adaptable. So the stories, you're right, the stories make, make our own shortcomings seem somewhat heroic or at least tolerable. Right, right. And, and that the, the narrative that sometimes we set out for ourselves, particularly in circumstances that aren't that wonderful, you know, they both help us through it, but, but sometimes also, you know, make those, make those shortcomings of society or our lives, they, they fix them even more deeply. And... And that's one of the things that the, the, the narrator, Beemore, is both struggling with and trying to break out of. They're trying to find a different narrative for themselves, a different kind of destiny. And that expresses itself in some of the, the graffiti and street art about Fan. And I think that's one of the uh, more really intriguing aspects of this novel is that as 
we see Fan grow both in the narrator's eyes and in ours into a, a heroine. Uh, we see her, their kind of like really halting attempts to wrap their brains around how do we express this new feeling for this person that is it's outside of our experience. Right, and uh, it's her her act of leaving is outside of the experience, outside of conception. But more importantly, their reaction to it is outside of experience <laughs> and conception. So as you say, they're struggling to find voice or form for that feeling. Uh, and so there's these crude attempts at, at muralizing Fan. They don't even know what to say about her. It's just they need to see her, you know, and they need to see by their own hand what she looks like. And that's what's, it's not just photographs of her. It's, and I w wanted to make sure that was the case. It was their own art. It was their own handmade attempts at screening her into their consciousness. And that's, that for me is uh, one of the poignancies of the, of, of the people of Beemore is that um, they don't know that art is important to them, the artistic urge. They're only discovering it because they're, they're feeling so dire all of a sudden. Uh, and trying to do something else besides just live and eat and sleep. That's a really interesting uh, notion because it, it's the first time I've ever seen or thought of graffiti and street art as a, a sweet and kind of generous and, I guess, innocent. Yeah, it's uh, usually we think of graffiti as being, you know, just like sort of macho kind of markings right? yeah. <laughs> uh, writ large but this is this is uh the people of Beemore are innocence all innocence in a certain way they're naive in a certain way they've been they've been their whole society has been de designed to keep them naive and happy you know sated mm -hmm. uh, and and their art is naive in a way but it it is the first expression of something much more complicated, and maybe dark turning it. You know that the 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 murals come up, and then it leads to actual acts. You know, not not radical uh, revolutionary acts, but uh, acts themselves. You know, they there's one scene in which there are all these lovely ponds around Beemore with ornamental fish that they don't eat, and there's a scene in which people just start throwing their litter and food into the pond. Uh, the fish love it, of course, but mm -hmm. But it's just a you know this disturbing little action that doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't really affect anything. But it means mean, it doesn't mean anything to the to the society. But it, it shows so much about. I I wanted to, to try to show a lot about what was just bubbling underneath, and so this little this little tiny act of defiance. You know I I love to the. Uh their innocent experience of market economics <laughs> when the charters kind of turn because they are the beam, people of Beemore are this you know pristine food production but then just on a whim of the market all of a sudden pristine food production is no good anymore right. and they're they're in a tulip crisis <laughs> right they are <laughs> they get into this bubble <laughs> and suddenly uh, no one wants their fish and no one wants their vegetables and everything's cheap and people <laughs> people then tried to you know write um, make businesses around that and and their catastrophic results you know um, and 
you know, obviously it's for comic effect, but but also too that um, you know the I wanted to I I was I you know particularly post bubble ourselves. You know, this is now about six seven years after our most recent bubble, um, and. I wanted to show, or just to talk about my interest in how much we're we're so at at the at the mercy of larger economic forces that that we have no control over, but yet, mm-hmm. you know, rule our everyday lives, and and that is it, it can be comic, but it's also uh, you know uh, it's also deeply worrisome <laughs> if you really think about it, and and so these poor people in Bmore. Um, you know they 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 so know know so little about what's really going on outside. Uh, it's their lack of information, their lack of real connection to the processes around them, and and that for me is is the scary part. Well, it's a great too. You do a great job of using the speculative fiction world to speak to uh, our economic concerns. It's there's a classic story by. Uh, Frederick Pohl called the Midas touch, which kind of inverts everything where uh, science has achieved such great heights of production that now the poor have to live at this rapid rate to consume all the rich, <laughs> and the rich get to live the more Spartan life. <laughs> and you get a little bit of that in this book. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, they, you know, they, they're one little taste of prosperity, right? <laughs> Proves uh, to be uh, abundance. <laughs> Right, of poisonous. Course. Yeah, be careful of abundance. Right, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, which is probably a, a good uh, a good notion to keep close. Uh, you know, it seemed like you had had a lot of fun writing this book and and did some interesting things for yourself as a writer uh, using the speculative fiction toolkit. I'm wondering if you are thinking of returning to that. Uh, I don't think so right now. <laughs> Uh, it would have to be, you know, again, um, an entirely different story, mm-hmm. an entirely different new a new set of concerns. Mm. I I don't want to. I would never return to the same kind of, even if the 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 players changed mm-hmm. um, in the outward circumstance. It fundamentally it would have to be just a different, both both different interests and also different approach. Mm. Uh, so. So perhaps if if those conditions were met, then yes, I, I might do it. Are you working on a new uh, novel now? I'm just starting, and um, it's it's maybe taking a little part of that abandoned Chinese contemporary novel, uh, and 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 re revisiting that uh, with a different sort of hero and a uh, different kind of. Um, Kind of storyline, uh, but so I don't love to talk about stuff too early. <laughs> but uh, it has a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Asia in it, actually, and um, and kind of a uh, a story about about uh, about what's happening around Asia today. Are you traveling to immerse yourself in that culture? I've been traveling a lot lately to Asia, to uh, Japan and Korea, and I'll go back to China soon. So it's going to be a, I think. Uh, you know, it's going to be a sort of constellation of, of those three, uh, those three areas in northern Asia. Well, that sounds like fun. I've I've been speaking with Chang Ray Lee. His newest novel is On Such a Full Sea. Thank you for joining me, Chang Ray. It's been a real pleasure.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.